Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, you know well that on this show we do our best not to demonize any inhabitant of the animal kingdom. But I've got to ask your opinion on one specific branch that is maybe maybe the most twisted branch in existence. How do you feel about ticks? Uh, ticks are awful. Yes, ticks. Ticks and mosquitoes are the the only specific animals that I, I, I tell my five year old that it's it's okay to uh, to hate on to to actively uh, kill or be killed with. I'm hoping later in this episode we can do a little guided meditation to take anybody out there who's got hatred of spiders, fear or hatred for for your little uh, for the good arachnids, mm-hmm. and to move that over onto the only animals that really might deserve it, which are ticks. Yeah, I agree 100%. And for instance, I look back on on my own life and having like a a revulsion at times to slugs, garden slugs, which is completely ridiculous given that garden slugs, yes, are gross, but pretty harmless. You're not going to get hurt by a garden slug. I mean, unless you, you know, you're freaked out and you trip over something, et cetera, and they're, you know... (laughs) There's some sort of crazy scenario that you build up that enables the slug to kill you. For the most part, the slug doesn't care about you, and it's not going to hurt you. But but uh, but mosquitoes, uh, other parasites such as ticks, these are these are major threats. They are actively hunting us. They are actively trying to feed on our blood, and in doing so, uh, putting us uh, at risk for a, a whole host of terrifying diseases now yet again i know we're going to hear from some tick lovers out there maybe you're a tick oh i doubt it <laughs> you're maybe you're a tick scientist and you're saying hey i study these things for a living you know you got to give them a fair shake okay okay i want to give them as fair a shake as i can they are animals they exist in an ecology in a web of life like all animals we try not to demonize anything here i'm just saying if you have to demonize something if you've got that hate in your heart the ticks are a good place to put it. Yes. Now, I I will definitely say that ticks are fascinating. I mean, yeah. we're doing a whole episode here about ticks and tick-borne illness. So, yes, it's a wonderful topic. They're fascinating organisms, uh, maybe even a por- perfect organism. And I'll also say that uh, that certainly we see cases where organisms like ticks and mosquitoes, their uh, their their nuisance factor. Uh, can be intensified by uh, by by what humans have done to the environment, Absolutely. putting things out of balance, making things, uh, uh, introducing the threat into new areas, and making uh, the the threat greater than it would normally be. It's like taking a normally rowdy and annoying child and giving that child a super soaker full of urine. Yes, but uh, but I still have to come back to the fact that having grown up in in tick haunted wildernesses. <laughs> Uh, I mean, namely Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, I associate ticks and also uh, chiggers, which are a type of mite closely related to ticks, as we'll discuss. I associate these creatures uh, with, with just a dread of the outdoors. These are creatures that make going out outside and enjoying nature difficult. Yeah. I love hiking around in the woods, but... Mm-hmm. Whenever I, I mostly do it by putting ticks out of my mind. Right. And when they come into my mind, that normally nice feeling of brushing through the leaves, of feeling them rub across your skin as you move through the trees, 
it turns into a creepy nightmare tickle of disease and hate. Yeah. Like it, it really has, it has gotten to the point. Look, luckily I have never experienced to my knowledge, any, uh, tick or trigger born illnesses or, or mosquito born illnesses, you know, knock on wood. But I, now when I drive, especially in the height of summer, when I drive, uh, you know, on the interstate and I'm going through, uh, a portion of say North Georgia or portion of Tennessee and I look out into the, into the wilderness, I just think of all the parasites. I think uh-huh. that those, those are just tick and trigger haunted woods just waiting to eat me alive. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about ticks in biology, ticks in history, some zoonotic diseases, some particularly interesting uh, diseases and syndromes that have been associated with the Lone Star Tick recently. Mm -hmm. And then I think we're also going to end with a few practical tips on what to do to protect yourself from the tick menace. But first, you had some notes about how tick hatred is not a recent phenomenon, right? Oh, no. Um Ticks and chiggers are, are worldwide uh, creatures. Uh, ticks and mites, as we'll discuss, there are a lot of them. They're everywhere. And uh, annoyance, hatred of them uh, goes back quite a long ways. In fact, uh, we have writings about ticks from uh, first century Roman author and natural philosopher Pliny the Elder. Good old Pliny. Yeah, you're probably familiar with Pliny. He, he described many a strange and bizarre creature in his book, The Natural History. Now full of many hilarious inaccuracies. Yes, many, many. Uh, and and, and some of them were pretty fabulous, right? He talked about, uh, sometimes it was just a a weird echo of natural world creatures from a distant land. You know, they were exaggerated through second and third hand accounts. Mm -hmm. But he also talked about monstrous humanoid races like the mouthless, hairy humanoid Estomi and the belly mouth to blimmies. They were always one of my favorite. You know, they have no head, but they have a face and a, on their chest and a, a, a mouth where their belly is. Now, you, you just got to wonder, did people read that in first century Rome and say, yeah, yeah, that's true. Or did they back then read that and say, I don't know about this? <laughs> well, I mean, a, a, it, it's very similar to, uh, to, to sea monsters, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, again, you're, you're not dealing with, with firsthand accounts. Someone like Pliny is not necessarily going out and exploring the world and taking notes. I, I just feel like I have a hard time modeling the appropriate level of skepticism to pretend to be someone of the ancient world. Yeah. Well, this would this would actually be an interesting one to, to discuss. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the nature of uh, exotic beasts represented in natural uh, tomes uh, and to what extent people back home took them seriously. Now, of course, he couldn't have dreamed up anything as exotic as the real arachnids of the animal kingdom, right? That's right. And he he really hated ticks. He called them, <laughs> quote, the foulest and nastiest creatures that be. Okay. And, uh, and I actually looked up a, a passage from the natural history. And, and, of course, bear in mind that the scientific information here is quite outdated, but the human disdain for ticks is not. Okay. He says, there is an animal also that is generated in the summer which has its head always buried deep in the skill of a beast, and so living on its blood swells to a large size. This is the only living creature that has no outlet for its food. Hence, when it has overgorged itself, it bursts asunder, and thus its very aliment is made the cause of its death. (laughs) That is great. He's saying, ticks can't poop. (laughs) <laughs> and they drink so much of your blood, and they're so greedy that they just explode and die. Yeah, they're like just a lesson in gluttony. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, 
that when you think of the tick, that's what you think of this thing that is just engorging itself on your blood or the blood of, uh, say, a beloved pet uh-huh. uh, to the point where they're just bags of blood. <laughs> Well, I guess we should look at the real science of ticks, right? Yes, we'll put aside, we're not going to use Pliny as a primary source on this. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll table that for now. Come back to whether they just drink blood until they explode because they can't poop. So ticks are, what are they? They are not insects. They are arachnids in the same class as spiders and scorpions. Yeah, and as far as arachnids go, the subclass Akari is where all the real arachnid diversity is. So in our previous episode on spiders, we mentioned 45,000 species of spiders, that being the, the about the most recent count. Uh-huh. But uh, there are an estimated 50,000 species of mites. That's another kind of arachnid. Right, closely related to ticks, and we'll get into those in a bit. And then there are upwards of 900 different ticks. A good 400 variety of those mites, by the way, just live in house dust. They They, they kind of live in everything, living everywhere. And, uh, yeah, the ticks and mites both benefit from worldwide distribution. Wow. So if you scoop up some dust bunnies from your floor, you're likely to have some great diversity of mites in your hands. Oh, yeah. Cool. Now, okay, ticks are, of course, obligate hematophagous ectoparasites of terrestrial vertebrates. Now, that that's a mouthful. Let's break it down. They're ectoparasites, meaning they're parasitic organisms that work from the outside, unlike uh, some other things they don't try to get inside you. They're mm-hmm. happy to work through your skin. Their prey is terrestrial vertebrates. This means land-dwelling animals with backbones like mammals, birds, and reptiles. They're obligate hematophages, mean, meaning that they live by drinking blood, and this is their determined survival niche. So blood-sucking isn't just an option for ticks. It's not one tool in their survival toolkit. It's blood or bust. This is how they have to survive. <laughs> So there are two primary superfamilies of ticks. There's the hard ticks, which are Ixodoidea, and uh, those are usually going to be larger, and they've got a harder exoskeleton, the, out- the outer shell. And then there are the uh, Argosoidea, which are the soft ticks. Those are usually smaller, and they got a softer body. Yeah, so the, the hard ticks, are generally we're talking 3.6 to 12.7 millimeters in size. Soft ticks, uh, 1.7 to 6.1 millimeters in size, but both varieties can reach 20 to 30 millimeters when they're fully engorged on precious blood until they just make themselves explode (laughs) because they can't poop well i i guess this um this observation comes from the fact that they do become so engorged that they are easily popped in the fingers yeah between the fingers if you're say pulling one off of a dog which you don't want to do by the way this Mm -hmm. is something i learned when i was a kid i saw adults taking ticks off of pets and off of people and they would intentionally crush them between their fingernails or crush them with their fingers when they could while they were pulling them off uh we'll get into the full range of tick tips later but you don't want to do that ideally you want to remove the tick without rupturing its body Here's a question. Now, we know it goes back to Pliny the Elder, but how much further back does tick hate go? <laughs> how long have other larger animals been hating ticks? You can, I think, safely say that dinosaurs hated ticks because <laughs> the fossil record indicates that ticks probably first arose in the Cretaceous period between 65 and 146 million years ago. Well, I mean, there's a lot of vertebrate uh, diversity during this time. This was just a, a buffet. Right. A right? lot of stuff to suck. So, uh, I looked into the history a little bit about this. Uh, there's a wonderful book that I've referenced on the podcast before titled Dark Banquet, 
Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood Feeding Creatures by Bill Shute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I highly recommend it. He has a, he talks a lot about bats and a lot of, and also about other blood drinking organisms. So of course he talks about ticks and he talks a little bit about their evolution. So tick ancestors were likely mites. Again, I, I mentioned that mites are very closely related to ticks. Right. Okay. And, uh, they evolved. These mites evolved to become obligate uh, sangrovores, obligate blood drinkers, like we've been discussing. Uh, but uh, but but the difference here is that mites are not obligate sangrovores. Okay, mm-hmm. like uh, for instance, uh, the modern and definitely foul chigger or red bug. The more technical term here is trombiculidae, mm-hmm. uh, which comes from the Greek to tremble. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> these creatures, and if you've if you've ever had to deal with these, these are are just horrific uh, creatures to have to to, to to live in the same environment with. I, I've hated them indirectly in that they, they've they assaulted beloved members of my family, including my wife before. Oh, but you've never I, I wanted to go out into the field the and the strangle the, the little things myself. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever, maybe when I was a kid, I don't remember yeah. ever having a big chigger attack, but they, they, they've gotten all up on the legs of people I have known and loved. I just remember them being a huge problem when I would go to scout camps as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they, they seem to just be particularly bad in areas that I continue to visit. Like I have some friends who live in the, the North Georgia mountains. They have a bad, uh, trigger problem. And then, uh, my, my mom's, uh, uh house, the area surrounding it has, uh, has quite a trigger problem as well. So the, the interesting thing though about these chiggers, which are mites again, they only feed on blood in their larval stage. Mm. So that the, the larval stage is when they're actually feasting on your blood the rest of the time. And when they get become larger, when they reach uh, maturity, they're living in the ground feasting on arthropods. Yeah. And also arthropod eggs. Ticks, on the other hand, uh, what, what essentially happened here is that they uh, evolved to carry on their juvenile ways exclusively. And this is a common route we see in evolution, actually. Often the, the route a species takes to become a new species is carrying over some juvenile characteristics into adulthood. Yeah, essentially becoming like a blood-sucking Peter Pan, uh, an <laughs> eternal man-baby uh, in everything but breeding, because that's the key thing, right, uh-huh. is that uh, if you're going to re- remain a juvenile blood drinker your entire life, you also need to be able to reproduce as an adult. Right. So how does that happen? Well, um, according to Shute, what occurs uh, here is, uh, quote, a change in the timing of genetically programmed events, a process known as heterochrony. So a mite somehow maintained its larval feeding behavior into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we actually have uh, a few examples of this uh, that we can look to in the you know, contemporary world. Uh, the most well-known process uh, for this is uh, neoteny. Uh, by which an organism reaches sexual maturity while otherwise juvenile, and the mud puppy salamander uh, is an example of this. It retains its gills through adulthood instead of, uh, uh, you know, essentially leaving them behind uh, uh, in its uh, in its uh, juvenile stage. Right. So it would have otherwise had like this amphibious life cycle where it was like a gilled underwater organism as a larva, and then became this air-breathing organism as an adult. Yeah. But it maintains the gills throughout adulthood. So the examples of the the, the tick and the chigger are interesting to look at because you see uh, the divergence there. Yeah. Uh, one continues to stick to a very successful strategy of only feeding on blood when it's small, mm-hmm. uh, when it's uh, when it's young, uh, whereas the tick just continues to do it. It was so successful, so good at it, it doesn't need to do anything else. 
oh, I'm so tempted to do that thing here that biologists hate where you imply that a uh, an organism that's taken a further evolutionary route ha- has somehow become more advanced. Now, we know that's not the case, and I hate it when people use that metaphor. Mm-hmm. But I want to say the ticks are just more advanced micro vampires. They are. Yeah. And the, the the other interesting thing, I'll get into the details here in a bit, but the tick is the only one that is a true vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chigger, though it is essentially feasting on your blood, it's not really. It's doing something a bit grosser to you. <laughs> now, if we want to look back at tick history itself, uh, a lot of what we know about ancient ticks is through ticks we found preserved in fossilized amber. Yes, fossilized oh, wow. amber, just like in Jurassic Park. And like in Jurassic Park, some samples of these uh, amazingly have maintained some of the uh, the red blood cells, the erythrocytes, of the mammals that these ticks were feeding on millions of years ago. This brings up an amusing idea. Uh, what if Jurassic Park, all these kids, uh, you know, they, they go to it in this fictional scenario and they're all excited about seeing the dinosaurs, but instead all they have are uh, ancient uh, mosquitoes and ticks. Just <laughs> you just ride around in a, in a special car and you just look out and the, the, like, just mis- the ancient mosquitoes flocking to the glass trying to get in. Uh, ticks kind of raining from the trees like uh, uh, like snow, like evil fruit dropping yeah. <laughs> from above. Yeah, and they're they're giant ticks. I'm not saying that there actually were giant ticks in Cretaceous mm-hmm. period, but, they, they but we a, can believe maybe. Yeah, know? I mean, if we're if we're doing the Jurassic Park scenario and we're we're tweaking science a bit for blockbuster success, uh, everyone wants to see giant ticks. Welcome to Hematophage Park. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so one interesting study here is uh, in April of 2017, this uh, professor emeritus of Oregon State University, George, George Poinar Jr., published a paper uh, describing a really interesting fossil find. Uh, so it was a tick of the genus Amboloma, which is a genus that will come up later on, and it was engorged with blood preserved in a sample of Dominican amber. Not only that, but there were two holes in its dorsal exoskeleton. So the back of the tick, it's engorged with blood and it's been punctured. Hmm. And this indicates that the tick was probably plucked off of its host by force. So you have to imagine this ancient scene. Probably what happened is that this tick was a casualty of primate grooming. So one monkey plucks a tick off of another monkey somewhere between 15 and 45 million years ago punctures that tick's engorged body like you're not supposed to do, mm-hmm. then drops it into a puddle of tree resin, which hardens and then preserves it almost perfectly. And this also preserved something amazing, mammalian red blood cells pouring out of the punctures in the tick's back. Even more amazing, Poinar claimed that because of the preservation quality, you can make out the uh, evidence of a blood parasite known as pyroplasms that are attacking the red blood cells that the tick drank from the monkey. So at the micro scale, this is a really cool fossil action scene. Oh, that is. And it th- this brings to mind two things. The, the first point I want to make is totally non-scientific. Uh, but I, I wonder if anyone has devised a monster movie in which someone tries to clone an, uh, an ancient hominid or, a, or an ape from blood like this. And uh, since it's, uh, it's blood from inside the tick, you end up with a tick hominid hybrid get roger corman on the phone (laughs) brilliant yeah it basically writes itself 
But the other idea is I wonder if we do have any tick defenders out there if this is not an area of consideration. The role that ticks might have had in the social evolution of uh, primate species, especially humans. Yeah, I mean, so we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this episode dwelling on how easy it is to hate ticks. Mm -hmm. That might be programmed into us at a very basic level because it is what it may be a big part of what gives us the social functions of our brain. So if you look at grooming as one of the primary social activities of primates Mm -hmm. and our brains as being, according to the social brain hypothesis, primarily shaped by social relationships and like remembering who you've groomed, who grooms who, uh, the kind of power dynamics in these grooming relationships. Mm -hmm. So you've got ticks, you've got ticks right there at the center of what makes us who we are? Yeah. And here's a third bonus idea for any, uh, especially for startups. Uh-huh. I think tech startups, uh, what you do is you introduce ticks into your office environment and then encourage, <laughs> uh, social grooming techniques to, uh, keep tick-borne illnesses from, uh, 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 you know, debilitating your, uh, your workforce. I am foreseeing some HR complications. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Let's let's move back to the the tick and mite scenario uh, for a second because I want to talk about their feeding practices. So, first of all, I mentioned how ticks and mites, uh, especially especially chiggers, and also you could probably extend this to even mosquitoes as well. These are creatures that are not just mere parasites; they they hunt us. I feel mm-hmm. like we often lose sight of that. Uh, ticks and mites use a combination of light, touch, and chemical stimuli to track you and then to spring. Uh, and chickers especially are speed demons. So they move in, they find the thinnest parts of your skin, such as ankles or armpits. They crawl under any type uh, clothing they encounter, and that's often where they they bite. Uh huh. And then they and then when once they bite, they start feeding. So what is chigger feeding like? Oh, it's it's grotesque. It's <laughs> you might expect it to be more in line with what a tick does, yeah. but the tick is more is really more specialized. And what the chigger's doing is more in line with uh, Brundle fly. Okay. <laughs> Cronenberg's the fly. Um, so the chigger attaches and then basically just shivs the bejesus out of the target area, uh, <laughs> injecting their saliva into the wound. Then the outer layer of the epidermis hardens into a straw-like stylostome. The saliva flows down this tube, and then the enzymes melt the surrounding tissue. And this is where I want to quote, uh, quote uh, Bill Shute because he puts this perfectly. He says, the rudest part of the chigger's feeding gig begins as the liquefied dermal stew is snorked up through the stylostome and into the parasite's muscular pharynx. Wow. So so it comes in, stabs you up real good like mm-hmm. it's uh, like it's, you know, with an ice pick breaking up some ice. Yeah. And then it. Put some enzymes on you, or is that right? It it does a little dissolving. Yeah, there's a basically it would be like imagine a a Dungeons and Dragons scenario where some evil goblinoid stabs you with a magical dagger Uh that like the the wound cauterizes into a tube, Uh you know, like a grotesque infected tube, and then it uses that as a straw, right, to just to pump a bunch of uh, dissolving saliva into your body and then slurp up the uh, or snork up the dermal stew afterwards so so it's just it's almost not fair to call it sucking because there you're imagining a tidier process it's more like just going to town on you right and while there are going to be blood cells in that uh that that 
liquefied stew. Mm-hmm. It's not drinking just blood. Right. So, well, uh, uh, to be fair, in some of what I've read, now ticks are primarily blood feeders, but they do get some other bits of you mm-hmm. in what they consume. Okay. Now, the immune reaction to this this awful violence against your flesh that's what causes the insane itching uh, with chiggers. And it's worth noting that most chiggers don't get to finish their human meals. Uh, they're going to get brushed off before they can actually fully engorge. Right. Now, there's a whole host of... So it's pointless, too. Yeah. I mean, they they just cause all the suffering, and they, they don't even really get to finish. Yeah, yeah, They, they most of them don't even get to finish. Now, one of the other things about chiggers is since they're so small, so so difficult to observe, mm-hmm. there there's a lot of misinformation about out there about what they are and what do you do about their bites. Yeah. So one of the, the common things I encounter is, is, is people that believe that the chigger is still in the skin, that it crawls inside you. Uh-huh. And is down there making you itch and that you therefore need to put uh, like fingernail uh, uh, polish on top of it to suffocate it in your skin. Ugh. Yeah. But that's complete hooey because the, the, the chigger feeds and then falls away. Mm-hmm. Often, most of the time, incompletely feeds and then falls away. So once you have that bite and you're having to contend with that bite, the chigger is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just going to have to deal with the, uh, the, the subsequent, um, uh, immune reaction. Right. So how is the tick feeding process different than the chigger process? Okay. So the tick, uh, is a more advanced, uh, drinker of liquids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unlike the chigger, it has an actual blood snorkel that it uses. Thank God. I mean, use your own <laughs> blood funnel. Come yeah, on. Don't forge one out of my flesh like some sort of a jerk. So it latches onto the flesh. It scissors its way into the host's skin with its, uh, chelicerae, which are, uh, pincer-like claws, mm-hmm. and then it drives uh, this this straw in this uh, this this device. It's known as a a hippostome. Uh, so this in this hippostome terminates in hook-like projections that hold it in place. So it it essentially anchors itself in your skin with this thing. And some species of ticks have saliva that effectively glues it in place for the duration of its feeding. And then they breathe through openings in their abdomen during all this because, you know, obviously you can't expect them to breathe through the front of their body. Terrific. Well, Robert, I think maybe we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get back into the history of the tick or some crazy alleged facts about tick torture. (laughs) All right, we're back. Okay, so I wanted to explore one morbidly fascinating, but I think likely dubious historical claim I came across, and that is the the claim of Central Asian tribes using tick torture on uh, prisoners. Essentially working with the ticks. If it were true. Now, I'll get to all the qualifications on that in a minute. So I first came across this in the Encyclopedia of Entomology, edited by John L. Capanera, and this looks to be, this is a very solid, you know, respectable academic encyclopedia. And there is an entry on the Argusids or the soft ticks by Hebrew University of Jerusalem entomologist and parasitologist Igor Uspensky. And in this entry, he's talking about uh, tick infestation of human and animal habitations. And he mentions that the longer ticks go without food, the more aggressively they attack those who come within range of them. And then he writes, quote, In past centuries, special bug traps full of hungry argosids were used by Central Asian rulers for the torture of prisoners who died from exsanguination, which means bleeding to death, by thousands of ticks. 
And I obviously you can guess why that got my attention. A uh, couple of questions to follow <laughs> up on. Is that possible to be exsanguinated by ticks, to be literally bled to death by ticks? And is that historically true? So I want to start with the is it possible question. I looked up some numbers and tried to do a little math. Is it possible to be bled to death by ticks? And how many ticks would it take? So there are usually four stages of recognized blood loss, uh, which indicate varying degrees of severity. You've got, you know, class one through class four hemorrhage. And the final stage, which tends to immediately precede death without intervention, is the class four hemorrhage, which happens when the body loses about 40 percent of its blood volume. Now, blood volume varies a lot with body size, but if you average us all out, just have a typical average human adult, that uh, that human adult is going to have on average about five liters of blood or about 10.5 pints. So to bleed to death, the average person needs to lose about 40% of five liters, which is two liters of blood. That's a lot of blood to lose. Yeah. So how many ticks would it take to get that amount of blood out of you? I mean, this is a, this is basically a death by a thousand cuts scenario, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I tried to look up how much blood does the average tick ingest? Uh, again, this is going to vary a lot by tick and by host. Uh, but let's just try to get a ballpark guess. One study I found from 1984 measured the blood meal size of four different hard ticks. Now, it's worth noting that Uspensky is alleging these are soft ticks that are doing the sucking. But I, I found this on the hard ticks. I will jump in and uh, and remind uh, uh, listeners of the earlier stat that shows that uh, dis- generally, despite hard or soft tick, uh, they can still bloat up to around the same size, it seems. Yeah, so, so the hard ticks are generally larger, but if they grow to about the same size, you'd imagine their meals to be, you know, again, vastly varying across species, but having some kind of comparability. Yeah, at least for the uh, for the factoring of, of this scenario. Right. So uh, I looked at So anyway, in the study, they look at four different kinds of hard ticks and you get samples of averages like 0.81 milliliters per blood meal, 0.55 milliliters, 1.45 milliliters and 0.51 milliliters. So I'd say on average, we can say, uh, just for the sake of round numbers, the average tick meal is maybe like one milliliter of blood. Okay. So if you take the average tick meal is one milliliter of blood, and the average person needs to lose two liters of blood to bleed to death, you'd need about 2,000 ticks to Uh bleed you to death. On one hand, that's a lot of ticks to have. On the other hand, that's not that many ticks, I mean, to kill you. So that that's my rough math, but the, there's still a question of could it actually happen? Maybe something, maybe that just wouldn't happen in nature. Like, would something prevent ticks from bleeding you to death? So I looked and tried to find evidence in modern times of a human or other large mammal being bled to death by ticks. I couldn't find that, but tick infestations in the wild can reportedly have really life-threatening consequences, leading not only to disease, but to like anemia and starvation in animals like moose and can also create what's known as the ghost moose. Yes, this is a um, this is a grotesque example of the um, the the, the sheer ravenous hunger of the tick. Uh, So in uh, what we're dealing with here is a cold weather tick uh, by the name of Dermacentor alpipictus, and this thrives in western Canada. Mm hmm. And it uh, causes what's known as winter tick disease in moose and other large uh, ungulates. So what happens is you'll have a moose that winds up heavily infested uh, by upwards of 2,000 ticks. Wow. 
And they, they become so infested by these things, so bothered by these ticks that they, they're grooming themselves incessantly. They're rubbing against trees and the resulting hair loss gives them a grayish or whitish uh, coloration. Plus, they're also emaciated from the blood loss and exposure because all that time um, rubbing against trees and grooming themselves is time that they can't spend feeding. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty sad example. But yeah. uh, I mean, unless you're unless you're rooting for the ticks and then, yeah, go ticks because they just uh, basically drained a moose. Well, I mean, it makes me wonder, even though I, I haven't found any cases where it's clear that an, a large animal was exsanguinated by ticks, mm-hmm. like bled to death. I have to imagine it may have happened at some point in history. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the problems when you're dealing with the natural world, of course, is that if a if a creature like a moose is sufficiently uh, debilitated by its tick infestation, yeah. then it's going to potentially fall to other predators, right? Right. So it's going to kind of take care of itself. But how do you compare that to an artificial environment where one human or one group of humans is is creating a tick infestation and keeping both the individual fun from dealing with their infestation and keeping other animals from taking advantage of it? Can you imagine, though, how disappointing that is for the predator that comes in to take it? Like, so pack of wolves comes up like, hey, free moose. Awesome. But it's covered in ticks. Yeah. Like if somebody offered you a free steak and it's covered in ticks. Well, I, you know, I guess it's kind of one, that's one of the, 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 the downsides to being a predator anyway, because pretty much any animal you're going to prey upon is going to have its parasites. And then there's a risk that those parasites are going to flee to you. I always think back to when I was a kid, I was riding with my dad uh, in his truck and uh, he struck a bobcat with the truck. Oh no. Uh, was, you know, you know, pure, pure accident. Uh, and then he, he got the, the, the creature and uh, it was dead and he put it in the bed of the truck mm-hmm. and you could actually see the various parasites leaving the body of the bobcat. Oh, man. Like just crawling away from it, leaving it like a, a sinking ship. That's sad and gross at the same time. Yeah, but it's it, <laughs> you, you can just imagine you're a, a large predator. You've killed your prey and yeah, you get to eat it now, but also it's parasites potentially get to eat you. I'm sure they're thinking lucky us. Yeah. All I'm saying is the woods are disgusting. That's that's, that's my argument here. Oh, but they're beautiful and disgusting. They, they are, yeah. So coming back to the historical side of Ospinsky's claim, it might be possible to to bleed a human to death with ticks. So not exactly clear, uh, but it would probably take at least 2,000 ticks or so. Ospinsky's claim is not footnoted. So I went digging around to try to find the earliest reference of this claim about Central Asian tick torture. Mm-hmm. In a number of English language books and magazines of the 19th and early 20th century, there are reports like this, so it, re, sort of retelling this rumor, uh, especially that in the city of Bokhara, which is in modern day Uzbekistan, there was a prison known as Kanakane in which prisoners would be tortured and eventually killed by being kept in a pit infested with thousands of ticks. And the earliest telling of this I found is in a Russian book called Bukhara, its emir and its people by the Russian author Nikolai Vladimirovich Kanikov, uh, with the English translation by Baron Clement A. Debode. And so here's its claim. I want to read a quote. A corridor leads into another prison more dreadful than the first, called Kanakane, a name which it has received from the swarms of ticks which infest the place and are reared there on purpose to plague the wretched prisoners. 
I have been told that in the absence of the latter, some pounds of raw meat are thrown in to keep the ticks alive. Oh. Uh, and then later, a deep pit at least three fathoms in depth into which the culprits are let down by ropes. Food is lowered to them in the same manner. And then the passage says that later the prisoners, they have their heads shaved and they're loaded with irons and sent barefoot down into the damp pot bottom of this pit full of ticks to await their judgment in the Registan. Hmm. So this was reproduced in a review of the book in an 1844 issue of the Dublin Review. And there are other 19th century reports along these lines, but most of them look like they're either just repeating this report or they're repeating other popular rumors about this. And with stories about these, you never know what to think. I'm kind of hesitant to believe them. Uh, One of the things is it's a report about an Asian society to a European audience in an age when, you know, even widely circulated mainstream books books couldn't really be counted on for much accuracy. Yeah. Uh, And we've certainly encountered our share of 19th century travelogues that are full of stuff that's obviously just made up to be sensational. You remember those ones about uh, the tribes around the world who worship man-eating trees and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And also exactly the reason it's a fascinating story also makes me more skeptical of it. You know, it's like sensational and lurid and memorable and exactly the kind of thing that would be tempting to invent or misrepresent for a sort of Orientalist audience who's hungry for strange and gory details about far-off cultures. Yeah, plus it's it's so overly complex, right? Yeah. Like, there, there are a lot of, like, baked into the premise, there, there are some already excellent ways to be awful to somebody. You know, right. just throw them down into a pit. Like, that's pretty terrible in and of itself. You don't need to add this layer of having to to breed and maintain uh this you know enormous population of parasites yeah however i can say apparently there's nothing materially all that implausible about it from what i can tell so i'd say it's a very creepy historical possibility but i wouldn't put my money on it being true however if you're an expert on the history of uzbekistan and you want to let us know uh you know one way or another whether you think this account is accurate or at all based on a, a sliver of truth uh you can write us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com and let us know what you think yeah all right at this point i imagine we should take one more break okay. and when we come back we will get into the topic of tick-borne illnesses uh particularly those associated with the lone star tick All right, we're back. All right. Now, as we said at the top of this podcast, we hate to we we don't we never want to encourage the demonization of any non-human animals. And we may have been somewhat failing at that today because ticks are so he, easy to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to suggest one way to get something good out of tick hatred if it's unavoidable, which is take all the arachnophobia that makes you hate spiders and and just take it off of the spiders and put it on the ticks. Yeah. You can do this in your mind. You can imagine a heavy cloud over a big pool full of spiders and take that cloud away. Just drag it away from them and put it over the ticks. If it's got to go somewhere, put it on the ticks because spiders, they're so helpful. Imagine a world without spiders. You need them to control insect populations. You'd be miserable in a world without spiders. A world without ticks? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, even the most dangerous spiders, really, they're... They're not coming after you. No, not at all. The encounter between human and spider is occurring more or less by accident. 
And we do know that ticks are something to actually worry about in a way that spiders are not. Ticks are a major vector of zoonotic diseases in humans and animals. Uh, in fact, a review of a 2015 scientific conference called the Mid-Atlantic Tick Summit uh, concluded that ticks are the single most significant vector of infectious disease in the United States, worse than fleas, worse than mosquitoes. If you're in the United States and you're worried about getting a disease from animals, you need to be worried about ticks. That's right. There are uh, there, there are actually 11 key tick-transmitted diseases, and uh, this makes them second only to the mosquito in disease variety. Is that worldwide? Uh, that is that is worldwide. Yes. Yeah. And uh, but but in the U.S. alone, we have 80 tick species with 12 particularly problematic species. Uh huh. Yeah. And tick-borne illnesses, we're not going to cover all of them today. We want to mention a few of the major ones and some of the more recent interesting ones, especially a tick-acquired allergy. Uh, but just to cover a few, we've got to start with Lyme disease, right? Yes. Uh, this is uh, spread by the black-legged tick, and Lyme disease, uh, in and of itself, is a is a is a a complicated illness that we still don't have a, a complete understanding of. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to Lyme disease, the black-legged tick also carries a, a malaria-like infection known as babesiosis and uh, also a form of tick fever uh, in cattle. Now, uh, the interesting thing about Lyme disease, to come back to that, is the white-footed mouse is the primary reservoir for this. Uh, so it carries Lyme disease without actually seeming to suffer any ill effects. Hmm. Uh, but then this spreads to ticks and then do other animals such as humans. And that's where you get the problem. Hmm. Now, you also have the American dog tick, also known as a wood tick. And this is the primary vector for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Not something you want. Mm -hmm. And this is potentially fatal. And uh, it's caused by uh, a, a particular bacterium. Yeah, the rickettsia bacteria. Yeah, rickettsia rickettsii, yeah. I believe. It's a, all of these, these, <laughs> these uh, particular illnesses are kind of a mouthful. And then we come to, I guess, one of the stars of today's episode, which is the lone star tick, mm -hmm. Ambiloma americanum. Yeah, and this is so so called because of the star-shaped silver marking on the females. And this particular um, tick, uh, you can actually catch a number of different diseases from it. So according to uh, the University of Kentucky College of uh, Agriculture, Food, and Environment, uh, you can uh, you can catch the following illnesses from the Lone Star Tick. Ehrlichiosis, which you can also get from a black-legged tick. You can also get tularemia. This is also present in the black-legged and American dog ticks. And uh, tularemia has an interesting history, uh, by the way. It only boasts an overall 5% mortality rate, uh, but the microorganism that causes it is one of the most infectious uh, bacteria on Earth. In 1941, the Soviet Union, report, Union reported 10,000 cases of the illness. And then during the German siege of Stalingrad the following year, the number skyrocketed to 100,000. And most of these occur, cases occurred on the German side of the conflict. This is where it gets uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit weird. Uh, former Soviet bioweapons researcher Ken Alabek argued that this surge in infections was no accident, but the result of biological warfare. Wow. And Alabek would go on to uh, allegedly help develop a strain of vaccine-resistant uh, tularemia for the Soviets before defecting to the United States in 1992. Yikes. Yeah. So, But, of course, that's a whole added level of, of humans taking already terrible uh, um, uh, biological threats 
and then augmenting them. In a way, this is the the real-life version of the tick torture pit. Right. So in addition to this, the uh, Lone Star tick also carries uh, that uh, spotted fever that we mentioned, um, also uh, this uh, uh, something that is called star eyes, southern tick-associated rash illness. Which is not very well understood now, but is can, can easily be mistaken for Lyme disease, though it's carried by a different tick. Right. The, the interesting thing here is that for a while, uh, we thought that uh, that it was very similar to Lyme disease and that it was caused by a particular spirochete, which is closely related. But according to the CDC, research into this did not uh, bear the, the idea out, and the current cause is unknown. So we're getting into the mysterious realm of some of these tick diseases. I mean, not that they're magical or anything, but they're just, they're just poorly understood. And, uh, and many of them have only really uh, come to the forefront of, uh, of research in recent years. Now, in a minute, we want to focus on this one very weird particular issue of acquired red meat allergies that may be associated with tick bites. But first, let's look just a little bit more at the Lone Star tick itself. Give me the back of the baseball card <laughs> stats on the Lone Star Tick. Well, a lot of it comes down to the differences between the Lone Star Tick and the Black-Legged Tick, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, granted, both are both are bad. Both are bad news. Both carry pathogens that are harmful to humans. Mm-hmm. And the conflict here has been that we've seen uh, uh, we, we've seen the, the case of the Lone Star Tick uh, sweeping in to the northeastern U.S., replacing the black-legged tick as the most commonly encountered species by humans. So, essentially, they're they're moving in on the black-legged tick's turf. Oh no! They're becoming they're becoming more prevalent, and therefore the 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 pathogens that they carry are more prevalent. So, the the Lone Star ticks are more mobile, mm-hmm. uh, making it harder to create tick-free zones for them with uh, with mulch and wood chip buffers, for instance. So that's another thing that the uh, the Lone Star ticks uh, have in their favor. Now, Boy, I've never heard of this actually. So you can you can buffer them off of areas by by making what like moats of mulch. Essentially, like I understand that 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 goes into some uh, like playground and park planning. Huh. Yeah, but that's not going to work uh, with the Lone Star uh, as much. So. The, the difference comes down to habitat. So the, the black-legged tick is a forest dweller, but the Lone Star tick likes hot, dry spaces with, and, and open spaces. Mm-hmm. So you have an interesting scenario here where global warming is one of the, the, the causes here behind this, this turf war. And the expanding the, range. And the expanding range of the, uh, of, of the, of the Lone Star tick. Mm-hmm. But it's also because we're displacing natural forest environments that the black-legged ticks, tick likes with uh, the sort of open, dry, artificial environments that uh, Lone Star ticks like. Huh. So be it a be it a highway or a, you know a, a you know a neighborhood kind of community. That's the kind of environment that a Lone Star tick is going to thrive in uh, more uh, more so than a black legged tick. And see a lot of delicious human skin. Yeah. And another factor uh, here with the expansion of the Lone Star tick is that Lone Star ticks feed on humans, coyotes, foxes, other animals, but white-tailed deer and wild turkeys are favored hosts. Now, I've read that the uh, white-tailed deer population and range is exploding in yeah. recent decades. And that's uh, and that's uh, led uh, some researchers to suspect that, uh, that the explosion of white-tailed deer may play in a part in the recent abundance of Lone Star ticks as well. Uh, particularly, there was a 2010 Washington University St. Louis study uh, 
led by a team of ecologists, biologists, and physicians. Uh, and so, yeah, you have, so you have three things happening and all of them are, are the, the, the fault of human beings, uh, alterations in the climate, uh, yeah. the world growing warmer, uh, the, the alteration in, in, in particular environments, changing a forest into the kind of wide open spaces that, uh, that the Lone Star Tick is going to thrive. Uh-huh. And then, uh, uh, uh an unbalancing of the environment that enables a, a prey animal like the white-tailed deer to run rampant uh, and with few checks to its population. Don't hate the ticks. Hate yourself. <laughs> well, don't hate yourself. Come on. It's not just all, check for ticks. <laughs> it's not all on humans. Uh, I mean, the ticks are pretty awful. But here we, we do see a, a strong case being made for the destabilization of the natural world that enables uh the villains of the of the natural world to take a more uh, predominant role. All right. Well, I want to hit you with a particularly odd tick scenario. You may have heard about something like this, but if not, you're in for a ride. All right. So, Robert, you're going out for a hike in the mountains of East Tennessee. All right. I a lovely uh, a lovely place to hike. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, okay. I've, I've hiked there many times. But if you yourself at home are trying to imagine doing that. And you're like, why would I do that? Well, it's because it's where you got abducted by aliens 20 years ago and you're trying to seek recommunion. Okay. But after you get back home, disappointed again, you discover a parasite on your body. It's a small reddish brown tick with a single white dot on its back and it's swollen. It's engorged with blood. And since you've read your Plenty of the Elder, you know that it's going to pop any minute because it can't poop. <laughs> so you pluck it off, kill it, you go on with your life. But a few weeks later, you're sitting down for a delicious cookout meal. you got a nice cut of aged ribeye. And as you eat more and more of this delicious, glistening, medium-rare beast flesh, you might start to feel odd, or you might not. It might uh, might take four to six hours before you start to feel odd. But either way, eventually, you start itching all over, and you develop red rashes or hives. You realize you're having an allergic reaction, and it could get worse. You could experience diarrhea vomiting, uh, trouble breathing, low blood pressure. And if it's a particularly severe case, it could even be life-threatening. So perhaps you are not one to learn quickly and you keep trying to eat red meat only to discover that it happens every time. You've developed this horrible allergic reaction that kicks in every time you chow down on some red meat. So what's going on here? Well, this is a question that actually a lot of people have been asking in in recent decades. Starting, I think, in the 1990s, people really started to notice there were these stories of acquired red meat allergy syndrome. And an allergy and immunology researcher named Thomas Platts Mills at the University of Virginia School of Medicine has been studying this phenomenon for more than a decade. And if you want to read more about this, there's actually a really good recent article in Wired that tells the story of how Platts Mills and uh, colleagues slowly unraveled the story. But to give you the simple version, Platts Mills had been hearing these reports for years that uh, people in certain regions of the country, primarily the southeast, had picked up the sudden allergy to red meat. And this would cause them to break out in sweats and hives after eating. And oddly, the range of these reports almost perfectly overlapped the range of the Lone Star Tick, the tick mm-hmm. we were talking about a minute ago. And later, he heard of similar symptoms being developed by patients who were taking a cancer treatment called cetuximab. And apparently the drug was proving effective, but after taking it, people with, with the, would have the same meat allergy symptoms 
uh, in these same meat allergy regions of the country. Well, that's kind of odd. So by teaming up with the drug's manufacturer, Platts Mills determined that the people experiencing the reaction to this cancer drug had enormous quantities of antibodies targeting a specific carbohydrate, a carbohydrate that was in the drug, but that's also in red meat. Huh. Now, you might be like, wait a minute, I thought meat didn't have any carbs. <laughs> well, meat doesn't have a lot of carbs, but red meat is not just protein and fat. Uh, mammalian muscle tissues contain a sugar called galactose alpha-1,3-galactose, known for short as alpha-gal. And this sugar is found in meats like beef, lamb, and pork. And if you have an allergy to alpha-gal, consumption of that type of meat can be uh, a potentially life-threatening risk. So after they found out about this, over the next few years, Platts Mills and many colleagues and co-authors published some papers in the Journal of Clinical Immunology that started to zero in on the problem. In 2009, they isolated what the meat allergy patients had in common, which is that 80% of them, or actually more than 80% of them, had reported being bitten by a tick. And then later, in 2011, they published a paper in the Journal of Clinical Immunology showing a direct link between tick bites and the proliferation of IgE antibodies, that's allergy antibodies, for alpha-gal, for this sugar that's found, found in meat and was found in that cancer drug that was causing reactions in people. So it looks pretty clear that people who get bitten by the lone star tick are the ones who are developing these meat allergies. But we don't know why. We still don't know what's causing the tick bites to create these IgE antibodies. But researchers are working on the problem. So there, there are lots of questions. Could it be some pathogen? Is it a germ spread by the tick? Or is it something in the tick's saliva that's similar to alpha-gal, which triggers a sensitizing exposure in the immune system? And then later your immune system mistakes alpha-gal for whatever it encountered in the tick's saliva. We don't know yet. So just to recap, it could be a new pathogen to add to the established list of pathogens it's very, associated with the Lone Star Tick. Yeah, but it's very possibly just something bioactive in the tick's saliva because there's mm -hmm. tons of bioactive stuff there. Essentially a complication that arises in the battle between uh, our immune system and this uh, invasion of our tissue. Right. Okay. Yeah, this is uh, – I, I, should, I should mention that I actually have a family member who, who suffers from this. Who, uh, the red meat allergy suffers from the red meat allergy uh, caused by a, a Lone Star tick bite. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's so does this family member that they just don't eat meat anymore? Uh, they can they can still eat um, like poultry and mm -hmm. fish, uh, obviously. But uh, but, yeah, they have to they have to forego eating, uh, eating red meat, eating pork, eating what, steak. Was this person a meat lover? Yes, yeah, very <laughs> much so. So uh, this is an Certainly, a scenario where, uh, since I don't I don't eat a lot of red meat anymore, mm -hmm. uh, I have to kind of translate it into my own diet and think, well, what if just just because I got bit by a tick out in the woods, suddenly I could eat uh, I could not eat any more shrimp. You're or, allergic to coffee. Yeah, or coffee, or you know, some other um, element that plays a an important role in my daily diet, and that that would just that would really be some garbage news, especially if it's it's the fault of this this stupid parasite that latched onto me in the woods one day. Now, I have heard accounts of people who are just like, well, you know, I've got my EpiPen. I'll just <laughs> I'll just get through. Don't this can be dangerous. Yeah. Like uh, these uh, anaphylactic reactions are, are dangerous and could potentially kill you if you have a really severe one. 
So you shouldn't just try to uh, say, well, I'll get through it. I'll eat the red meat I want and deal with the hives. Now, I was uh, in reading some material from the University of Kentucky uh, about uh, about this uh, this red meat allergy that arises from uh, the Lone Star tick bites. It did point out that the reaction can occur in people with a history of strong reactions to tick bites. This is redness and itching at a bite site that lasts for weeks or from many bites from a single incident. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, there are a lot of questions and a lot of uh, a lot of unanswered questions uh, regarding uh, this particular uh, ailment. Uh, but you can you can you can I think that helps define the problem a little bit. Now, one way that this problem has gotten even weirder in recent years is that people outside the normal Lone Star Tick range have started showing up with symptoms of the mm. alpha-gal allergy. It's not exactly clear why this is. Uh, these people may have, like, picked up Lone Star Tick bites while traveling into Lone Star Tick territory. Yeah. Could be it. Or is it that the Lone Star Tick is expanding its range? And there are some clues, as we discussed a minute ago, that this might be the case, since we already know the Lone Star Tick has expanded its range significantly over the last two or three decades. And if its primary prey animal is like white-tailed deer, and that's exploding all over the place, it wouldn't be all that hard to see why the tick would be expanding. Yeah, indeed. Uh, another poorly understood condition, I think we may have mentioned it earlier, uh, associated with the Lone Star Tick is this starry disease, which, uh, as we said, stands for Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness. And and this just mainly manifests as like a red bullseye rash around the site of the bite that expands to a diameter of about eight centimeters, in some way similar to Lyme disease, but not the same disease. Mm-hmm. Now, in in Bill Shute's book, he uh, he made a couple of points about this. He said that one of the plus sides is that that uh, star eye is milder than Lyme disease, mm-hmm. and the other uh, the the other uh, uh, plus here, if you want to call it that, is uh, according to him the bite of the Lone Star Tick is more painful than many other varieties of tick, giving you perhaps a, a you know a heads up uh, on on the uh, on the bite and the presence of a parasite and giving you uh, the get opportunity it off to sooner. get it off. Yeah. yeah. Because as we'll discuss, it's one of the key things with, with ticks is if you have one attached to your body, you you want to go ahead and get it off and you want to get it off in the correct fashion. Yeah. Now we are about to get into some practical tick tips in just a minute, but right before we do that I wanted to quickly note the most awful tick story I've ever heard. It's even worse than the tick torture, I think. Just in case you were still considering going outside this summer, uh, Joe is going to uh, <laughs> dissuade you. Paper published in 2001 in the Archives of Ophthalmology. I found this through an image search indirectly. <laughs> um, this paper is titled Lone Star Tick Bite of the Conjunctiva. The Conjunctiva, mm-hmm. if you're not familiar your eye yeah as in conjunctivitis yes so uh they report two different cases of lone star tick bites to the eyeball in this both in the summer of 2000 the year 2000 and both within a hundred mile radius of each other very odd uh so in july 2000 a five-year-old girl showed up at an arkansas hospital with a spot on the white of her eye it was a lone star tick sucking her eyeball Fortunately, she was sedated and the tick was successfully removed. And then in August of 2000, a two-year-old girl also showed up at a hospital within 100 miles of the first one with a tick on her eyeball, again, successfully removed. In both cases, the patient was fine, so you don't need to worry about these kids. They're, they're all right. They 
uh, how old would they be now? You know, they're, they're in their twenties. They're, they're fine now. Okay. I mean, actually, I don't know, but I assume they're fine. There's no reason to assume they're not Mm -hmm. fine. But yeah, crazy question. Why so close together? Were ticks deciding in the summer of 2000 in this region around Arkansas to start biting people's eyes? Or was there some kind of tick ritual going on? Are you just looking at the picture, Robert? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I've just, we have, it's a black and white image too. It's not even the full color that's present uh, uh, for you on the screen. But yeah. Okay. Now that's the full color there. Yeah. It's, it's, Disturbing. And on top of this, the case has to involve small children, which makes it even more horrific. Yeah. Come on, Tix, have you no shame? Okay, well, I think we should finish up with some practical advice on how to avoid tick problems. Now, obviously, this is not a medical advice show. We are not doctors. Mm -hmm. If your doctor tells you something conflicting with what we're saying, obviously, trust the doctor, not us. But we're just trying to report on what uh, major authorities like the CDC have to say about avoiding tick-borne illness. Um, So here are a few basic tick protection rules. So first of all, never go outdoors. (laughs) Never go into the the woodlands of uh, of East Tennessee. You can't do that. That's true. Yeah, you're you're denying yourselves the the wonders of the natural world. One thing you can do is uh, while encountering the wonders of the natural world, you can certainly uh, tuck your pants into your socks, right. uh, wear socks, wear shoes, and uh, put on some DEET, uh, s- some bug spray with DEET in it, generally 20 to 30% DEET on exposed skin. That stat coming to us from the University of Kentucky. Yeah, CDC recommends a minimum of 20% solution of DEET in your, mm-hmm. in your bug spray. Uh, another thing that can help if you're out hiking around in the woods, because obviously you can't stay inside. I mean, it's beautiful out there. Yeah. I love the woods. So, one thing that does help is just stay on the trail. Avoid walking through brush in a way that brings your body into lots of direct contact with plant matter. Now, why does that work? Well, it helps to know a little bit about the hunting strategy of ticks. Ticks can't fly or leap out at you like fleas or something. Mm-hmm. Hard ticks hunt for hosts with a trick called questing. Nice word. And what it means is they find a nice little spot on a piece of vegetation, like a leaf or strand of grass, and they clutch that surface with their back legs, and then they reach out with their front legs. And, and I want to add that uh, that chiggers use the same uh, the, the same method. Oh, yeah? Questing. Yeah. yeah. So if you brush by coming into contact with this plant matter where they're hanging out, it will grab hold of you with its front legs and hang on and then try to find a space to bite. So if you don't give them a chance to grab hold, it's much uh, less likely that you're going to get ticks. So does that make sense? You just don't push through the leaves. Try to keep some distance between yourself and the plants. Well, I think that the way to translate this into um, in, into your encounter with the wilderness is if you're going on a hike, uh, stay on the trail. Exactly. Yeah. Don't go, you know, trouncing off into the the into into the the waist high grass uh, for you know certainly to use the restroom. This is that's already bringing to mind too many horrific scenarios. <laughs> uh, just stay on the path and hold it till you get to an actual uh, restroom or just go on the trail. There's no shame. If someone objects and says, what are you doing? That's gross. You say, look, there are ticks out there. There are triggers out there. Yep. Um, you can just look the other way while I finish. Exactly. It's all nature. Uh, another thing, you can treat clothes with permethrin, CDC says. Uh, mm. But let's say you've got a tick. All right. You've gone out. You realize you've got a tick. What to do? 
find it and remove it as soon as possible. So it's important uh, after you get done with a hike or being out in the woods or something, shower as soon as you get home from outdoor activity and search your body, clothes, and your gear for ticks. And maybe even most importantly, if you take your pets with you, search your pets. I love my dog, but he is a tick magnet. He loves to... It's it's almost as if he's directly avoiding the advice we just said a minute ago about staying in the middle of the trail mm-hmm. because he wants to brush against all of the vegetation. It's like he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly acquaint yourself with your own body uh, after a, a, a venture into tick land. And if you have a small child, that's also important. Uh, look them over. Yeah. Like uh, in my family, like already with my five-year-old, uh, tick check is just what you do after you've been around the woods. Yeah. Uh, not that hard to do. You just look around, make sure you don't have anything. Uh, let's say you do find one. You're back home. You've discovered a tick on your body. How to remove it. You, you've probably heard a million different things. <laughs> put Vaseline on it. Put mayonnaise on it. Kill it with fire. You know, use a, use a lighter or a hot needle or something. CD says, CDC says, don't bother. Forget it all. Just get the thing off of you as fast as you can. And the uh, the method they recommend is tweezers. Hmm. Get a pair of tweezers, and what you do is you grab the tick with tweezers as close down to the skin as you can. What you're trying to do is grab it by its head and not by its swelling abdomen. And you squeeze gently, trying not to crush it, and you pull it upward with a steady, gentle motion. And you don't twist, you don't jerk. You're trying not to break off the tick's mouth parts inside your skin. If you do break off the mouth parts inside your skin, you want to try to remove those with the tweezers as well. Then you want to clean the bite area with disinfectant like alcohol or iodine or soap and water. Once you've got a removed tick, do not crush it with your fingers. Drop it in alcohol or some other poison to safely kill it or just drop it in the toilet and flush it down. And if you do get a tick bite and you get a rash or a fever within a few weeks of the bite, you see a doctor and tell them about it. Yes, in the in the case of star eye, I believe that can manifest as soon as seven days yeah. after a bite. So, so yeah, it's not, not once the the tick is removed, uh, just keep keep an eye on how the the bite area is behaving. Yes, exactly. And also also keep an eye out for for general symptoms of sickness. If you get headache, fever, things like that, see a doctor. Tell them you were bit by a tick. Mm-hmm. Remember when you got bit, especially if you can tell what the tick looks like. That that'll help too. Yes, indeed. Heck, if you're uh, if you're drowning the thing in alcohol and not uh, flushing it down the toilet, you could even hang on to the specimen should that uh, become important later on. Hey, I got a shot glass full of whiskey and seventeen ticks from last <laughs> summer in it. Yeah, I mean, don't get don't go crazy with it. Don't start a, a tick collection. Um, uh, the, you'll get into uncomfortable territory there. Uh, I think pretty quickly. But uh, but yeah, making my very you, own tick pit. Yeah, you could hang on to it, or I guess you could take a photo of it. That's maybe less. Yeah. grotesque if you have the appropriate uh you know zoom on your uh, your camera i think the moral of today's story is that at some point in your life you will get a tick in your eyeball oh no 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 <laughs> i i i think the the argument is don't worry about the ticks in the eyeball don't worry about the you're right the uh the exotic pits full of ticks or even about the uh you know the, the tick-borne pathogens that have been uh, uh that have been altered in in soviet bioweapons labs but yeah, just the worry. Let I me mean, not worry, but be aware of the everyday uh, threat posed by tick-borne pathogens. Don't worry. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be yeah. safe. Be vigilant. Ticks are a part of your world. Chickers are a part of your world, and just uh, uh, act accordingly. Yep. 
So there you have it, an introduction to the world of ticks and some of the mites, uh, what you need to be aware of, what you need to, uh, to do to remain vigilant against them. I'm worried I may have gone overboard today in giving in to my tick demonization uh, no. feelings. I know, I know, I know that's not what we do here. We don't demonize animals, even when they're scary. But, uh, but it, you, you got to keep an open eye, even if you don't hate them. Well, the thing is, they're coming after your blood. And it's like that scene in the Mosquito Coast where uh, where Harrison Ford's uh, character kills the mosquito on the kid's neck and says uh, says that's that's your blood, not his. Uh, <laughs> or I guess it would be hers, right? It's the mosquito. Uh, right. I can't I can't remember the exact quote, but it's a valid point. Uh, yes, you know, honor the natural world. Uh, uh, be considerate in your dealings with other life forms. But if that life form is after your blood, you're going to have to to step to the threat, right? That's where you draw the line. Yeah. All right. And stay in the middle of the pack. Indeed. Hey, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. You'll find some videos. You'll find uh, blog posts on various topics. And you'll find links out to our social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Instagram, all of those. And, hey, you can get the, 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 the podcast pretty much anywhere you get podcasts these days. And wherever you get us, if there's a if there's a place to leave a nice review, to throw us a five stars, six stars, seven stars, whatever the maximum star value may be, oh, why don't you do that? Because that'll that'll help this show out and that'll help that'll enable us to continue to bring lots of uh, disturbing content like this one, like this episode uh, to your ear hole. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.